Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week, I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication. And this week, what I am going to be doing is not what I was hoping to be doing. I had been hoping to be discussing the trailer for Sony's The Dark Tower adaptation. Uh, but unfortunately, they did not release the trailer as was promised by Sony uh, back in the fall. They had stated that they were going to drop it in time for Christmas or on Christmas Day, um, and they did not do that. Instead, they they dropped the trailer for Alien Covenant, and I, I would think that they just didn't want any competition within their own properties. So they they're I I imagine they're holding off until they they get some more. Uh, visual effects done and then then they'll release it so unfortunately guys that's not what i'm going to be talking about uh instead what i'm going to be doing i'm going to review cell because i've been sitting on this review for a while and i realized hey you know what i don't want 2016 to end without me putting out at least one more podcast episode for everyone so that's what i'll be doing i'll be talking about god help us the adaptation of of cell so just a couple things before i get any further uh the the sound quality is not up to par on this episode because a the microphone that i always use i'm letting a a friend of mine borrow it for his podcast so i don't have that and b uh i have had this really bad throat problem uh it's just a cold it's just a sore throat it's been brutal though it, it it feels like i've been gargling with broken glass it's not really how i wanted to spend the the christmas weekend but other than that i've been in fine health uh i'm just starting to get over it but i have had a really bad sore throat and you might hear that in my voice so just be warned everyone uh if you're listening through uh earbuds uh, I, I i might still be contagious so i'm i'm sorry for that um and i just gotta say that i i haven't been doing the dad thing for a full year yet but the dad jokes are on point so look out 2017 i am on fire okay so before i get any further uh as always, the first thing I'm going to do is shamelessly plug my own stuff. Uh, so as you know, I have been fortunate enough to publish, to have some of my short stories published. You can find them in the following uh, um, publications. You can find the short story Room 207 found in the pages of Dark Moon Digest issue number two. You will find the short story, This World Will Eat You All the Way Up, uh, in the pages of Nine Tales Told in the Dark, issue number nine. You can find my short story, Hopscotch, found in Wax and Wayne, A Gathering of Witch Tales, that is an anthology. You can find my short story, Forget Me Not, in the pages of Trysts of Fate magazine, the short story, The Portrait, found in Skeptics Must Die, and the short story, Spouse Swap, in uh, the pages of Ink Stains, volume two so any of those short stories guys i think that you will like um unfortunately i don't have any new news in terms of other stories being published i have about 15 stories out uh in the in the world of submissions right now so hopefully at least one of those will will be uh will find a home soon and uh so i'll definitely keep you all updated 
And up next, I would like to read some iTunes reviews because I am just so appreciative of everyone that has uh, written in and left a review on iTunes. This, uh, to date, uh, the, the Stephen King cast is the highest rated Stephen King podcast out there. So I am just very, very grateful for that. Thank you, everyone. Keep those iTunes reviews going. So up first, we have from Loro74, fantastic Stephen King podcast. I'm fairly new to the podcast world, but have been in the Stephen King universe for as long as I can remember. And this podcast is a great walk down SK memory lane. Our host gives us knowledgeable and insightful book reviews with fun looks into movie adaptations as well. As a constant reader, I am very appreciative of the time and energy devoted to this podcast, and I absolutely love it when a co-host has something to add. I am now certainly a constant listener. So thank you, LowRow74. Um, I really appreciate it. Up next, we have Essential Listening from Haley. 4383, who writes, Great insight into anything and everything Stephen King. Nice quality audio, very thought-provoking and entertaining. So thank you, Haley. Up next, we have Uncle Trey, who writes, Best ever. This is the best. Not just a recap, <laughs> recap but great insights. It has made me an obsessive fan of Stephen King. Up next, we have Kay uh, Barnett, who writes, um, having been a lifelong constant reader, I have been greatly enjoying this podcast. Good analysis, fair and balanced, not just hero worship. Thank you for that, uh, Kay Barnett. Um, I really try and be as uh, critical as I possibly can be um, because I, I just think that, you know, true fandom, you know, you, you, you see the good and you see the uh, potential that uh, a creator... Um, can uh, aspire to be and, and to hold that creator to, to that potential rather than just loving everything that someone does. Um, and then we have C. Manley 42 who writes, Comprehensive. This podcast is a great way to keep the nostalgia and enjoyment of King's works alive in my life. And then lastly, we have Rody 666 who writes, If you're a King fan, you'll want to listen to this podcast. Intelligent, insightful, entertaining. It's a good one. So thanks, everyone, for writing in. Like I said, I can't do it without you. So if you um, you might be off for Christmas vacation, you might have some time on your hands. Uh, so if you do have a couple moments to spare, please head on over to iTunes. Just kindly leave a review. It will do wonders in legitimizing the Stephen King cast. So up next, I want to get uh, to some listener emails because those have been pouring in since I last recorded, which was in October. Uh, that was the last the last time I had put out an episode, and that was for uh, Jonathan Maberry's uh, conclusion to the Pine Deep trilogy, Bad Moon Rising. And just the feedback on that, you know, for something called the Stephen King cast, I want to keep it in the realm of Stephen King and in the family of Stephen King, literally, when I review uh, Joe Hill's works. So this this was a stretch to to go from Stephen King to Jonathan Mabberry. But the feedback from that uh, has been very, very positive. I've had a lot of listeners reach out and say thank you for recommending Jonathan Mabberry. They have gone out and they've they've procured the the Pine Deep trilogy. And as I knew, as I knew, they they fell in love with it. So. 
Um, I, I just want to thank everyone that has gone out on this recommendation. I know that Jonathan Maberry would like to thank you, I'm sure, for going out and picking up his books. And I hope that doesn't end with the Pine Deep trilogy. I hope that you get into the Joe Ledger novels and everything else that he's written because as as the Pine Deep trilogy is any, any indication, the man definitely has talent. So... Uh, with that said, I'm going to get to some listener emails who writes, Dear Stephen King cast, uh, TJ, Tommy here again with yet another long-winded email. First off, congrats on your daughter. Thank you. On the comic book front, this time, which was, this is back in May, uh, May 3rd, 2016, they are adapting Susanna's entry into Midworld. I haven't picked up the first two issues of the Ark Bitter Medicine yet. My proximity to an actual comic book store is a bit over two hours, so I usually wait until three or four issues out. I recently finished an advanced reader's copy of Joe Hill's The Fireman. I work at an independent bookstore in upstate New York oblong books and music in Millerton, and we receive ARCs from publishers from all over. I am sad to say that while the book started off strong, the fireman slowly lost my interest after the first 300 pages. It's a long book, just under 1,800 pages. I won't spoil it for you or any of your other listeners who are interested in picking it up on May, but I struggled with Hill's overwriting, a weakness inherited from his father. Don't be discouraged to not pick it up. The concept is fantastic. The main character is a complete badass, and the fireman is an awesome character as well. The marketing campaign is billing the novel as a post-apocalyptic, end-of-the-world story, but it's not at all. It has more in common with his father's Cell novel, Lord of the Rings, The Strain TV series, and Firestarter. There's one major plot point that gets tossed away so matter-of-factly that it drove me crazy. There's almost 150 pages devoted to it, and the payoff is weak. I feel very strongly that the marketing and the hyping of the horror novel novel will yield mixed reviews only because the publisher is not marketing it as a fantasy slash epic. I feel really bad about not being in love with the book, but on the other hand, I've been loving Lock and Key. Listeners of the Stephen King cast, if you haven't checked out this awesome graphic novel comic book series, please check them out. I blew through volume four and five this past week. And so I'll I'll step in here for a second. I am currently reading The Fireman, um, and just so everyone knows, I just want to warn you, don't expect a review of uh, this book from me anytime soon. I am just reading this to enjoy it. Um, in the future, I might go back and do a reread, and then along with the reread, be able to, to get my thoughts and my notes and everything together. But just for the time that I have, which is not a lot of... If I'm going to read a book right now, I, I, I just want to read it and just read it as just and someone that enjoys reading. Uh, and I, so I've taken off that analytical cap for the time being. Uh, if Stephen King comes out with another book, then I'm going to put that analytical cap back on. But just for right now, I just wanted to read. I want to enjoy. Um, and so my initial thoughts on The Fireman, I'm enjoying it. I don't enjoy it so far as much as Nosferatu, as Horns, as Heart-Shaped Box, certainly Lock and Key, um, or any of 20th Century Ghosts, but I am enjoying it. And even uh, if it doesn't, I don't, I don't know how to say, like, anything that I say is going to make it sound like I'm enjoying it less. I think it's really, really good. And let's just say at the end of the book, if I get to and say, okay, yeah, that was good, it wasn't as best. Even Joe Hill doing good is still better than most people's great. So 
uh, I am enjoying it, and I do agree with a lot of the thoughts that that, that you stress um, that it it is not horror, that it is fantasy, and that it does feel very similar to Cell, Lord of the Rings, The Strain, Firestarter. Um, and then take this with what we know from Horns. Uh, you can you can tell that there's definitely some Joe Hillisms here, that the imagery of fire is something that he definitely likes to play with. And everyone, if you have not read Lock and Key, you guys need to do yourselves a favor. Go out, get Lock and Key. It is amazing. I also finished an ARC called My Best Friend's Exorcism by Grady Hendrix, author of Horror Store. The elevator pitch is Mean Girls meets Evil Dead. A little flawed, but I think fans of SK and JH, Joss Whedon, and modern horror movies will like it. I look forward to your review of End of Watch, The Fireman, if you do it, and future podcasts. Keep up the great work. Already suffering withdrawal from your podcast. Do you have any to recommend? Your fellow constant reader, uh, TJ Tommy. Um, P.S. You don't have to read this on air, but I will. I just wanted to let you know that I'm a music songwriter, and I recently released my album Transmission Party as Transmission Party in the song Boredom, reminiscent of Radiohead and the Beatles' I'm the Walrus. That at uh, 1 minute and 12 seconds, I name-dropped the Langoliers. I think that's awesome. So, uh, Tommy, some podcasts that I listen to that you guys might like. Um, I Anything by Dave Chen, I listen to. So, that includes the Slash Filmcast. Um, he does Decoding Westworld with Joanna Robinson. He does A Cast of Kings with Joanna Robinson. Uh, so Decoding Westworld clearly is them going into a deep dive on Westworld. Uh, a Cast of Kings is their Game of Thrones podcast. Um, Dave Chen and his brother and Joanna Robinson in the last season um, have done The Ones Who Knock, which is a continuation from their Breaking Bad podcast. Uh, and this is their Better Call Saul podcast. Um, I listen to, let's see, Gen Pop, a pop culture podcast, which is weekly with David Chen and Joanna Robinson. Um, you guys all should be listening to the Stephen King podcast if you're not doing that, as well as the Ka-Tet cast, which is a Dark Tower podcast. Um, I have been listening to a Storm of Spoilers lately, um, also with Joanna Robinson. I listen to The Watch um, weekly. I listen to Birth Movies Death Cast. Um, How Did This Get Made When I Can? Uh, and let's see what else. The uh, Castle of Horror podcast for horror fans out there. And um, for anyone that is interested in the storytelling process, you guys probably should be checking out the Story Grid podcast. I know that I've definitely talked about that before on the air. So the Story Grid is something that you will all um, you'll all appreciate. And I have a letter from Joanne who writes, uh, I have only recently discovered the brilliance of Stephen King. It was around three years ago that I got really interested in horror and as a consequence became intrigued by the character of Pennywise the Clown, often considered one of the scariest characters ever. This led me to buying the book It, and I was hooked. As a child, I loved reading, but had found that university and starting a PhD had resulted in reading becoming less of a priority. King has reignited my passion for reading, and I'm now working through all of his books, although not in chronological order, which in hindsight I wish I had done. 
Any spare moment I have spent immersing myself in one of his many different worlds. I have around, I've read around 18 books so far and would say that Pet Cemetery and 112263 are my two favorite at present. I document my process through my Instagram account, and I love interacting with fellow King fans as none of my friends share my passion. Um, her uh, uh, Instagram account is at jobis89. I found your podcast and I've loved the episodes I've listened to. You highlight so many connections and previously missed and make me really appreciate how good Stephen King is. I'm currently halfway to the Dark Tower. I'm reading Wolves of the Kala and cannot wait to see how it all plays out. I'm equally intrigued by the movie. Long days and pleasant nights, sigh, Joanne. And may you have twice the number. Um, so thank you, Joanne. I hope that you have concluded your run to the Dark Tower. Um, and I hope that you enjoyed it. Um, and now that this is all that I'm going to read for uh, listener email right now. So let's talk a little bit about the Dark Tower because uh, I don't recall exactly what, where we had left off in discussion of the Dark Tower in terms of the movie. So just so everybody knows, I think that I might have talked about this um, before. Uh, the movie was originally scheduled to come out in February. Um, it wrapped up filming in August. It filmed during the summer, wrapped up filming in August, and there was some promotion. I mean, through Entertainment Weekly, there there was some promotion around it, but not. There was no poster. Uh, there was no trailer. There was no teaser. There was none of the typical things that you see. Uh, there was some really cool and fun, inventive online stuff, but. Uh, that died uh, in the fall, that it kind of hit a crescendo in the summer. Um, the Sombra app, for instance, they had a presence at uh, San Diego Comic-Con. Beryl Evans was there promoting Charlie the Choo Choo, which is just crazy to say. Um, the, co the, the Tet Corporation was there passing out pens and, and um, book bags and stuff like that, which is really, really cool. But then... Um, but then it all died down, and then I just, I wasn't the only one, but a lot of us started thinking, okay, if this movie is coming out in February, the, the, the promotion machine really needs to start hyping itself up. They were supposed to have a presence at PopFest in October. They pulled out of that. I started to get worried. Um, and then they announced that they were going to push off the movie from February to August. Um, in order to, they said, to devote the time necessary in making sure that the visual effects are up to par. Um, which, you know, to me, that's great. If you acknowledge, if you realize that, okay, this movie, we're not going to be able to get it done the way that it needs to get done in the time frame that we originally stated. Let's give it more time. That, to me, is a good decision. I'm happy about that. But, um, in the meantime, they haven't really done much to promote it uh, they just released an image of Jake and Roland walking, and it says long days and pleasant nights, which I think is cool. That's fine. Um, but the trailer, like I said, was was supposed to come out right around now, and it hasn't. And that makes me upset. They had There had been a leaked version of the trailer in October. Um, I really debated going back and forth reviewing that trailer, but I said to myself, I'm not going to review this unfinished product. I'm going to wait to see what Sony finalizes and sends out because for all we knew, for all we know, they could drastically change the trailer. And as we've seen recently with Rogue One, 
what's in the trailer is not indicative of what we're going to see in the final product. So you got to take trailers, you know, with a grain of salt. So an unfinished leaked trailer, uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll pass off, I'll hold my judgment until Sony releases the actual trailer. So I wish that I was talking about the actual trailer um, because I'm, I'm dying to talk about it with you guys. I really am. So hopefully Sony releases it soon because even though the movie is coming out in August, let, let's get the word out now. Let's start talking about it now. I would like the general public to start talking about it. I think that there's a lot of buzz about no there's not there's not but the buzz that was there i think had given them some traction and i think they lost that traction so i think there's time there's definitely time um and for some more uh, inventive and fun ways to market this movie so i'm hoping that it all comes together i'm still excited about the project i'm still going to see it i'm still going to talk about it you'll still hear my your my thoughts on this podcast um, I just hope that my thoughts about the trailer I'm able to share with you sooner than later. So, um, you know, check my Facebook, check my Instagram, check my Twitter, because I'll, I'll, I'll still be keeping everyone updated on things. Um, but hopefully Sony um, publishes it soon. And uh, speaking of upcoming movie adaptations, uh, <laughs> we've had a couple new stills from It. And there's one in particular that is is getting all of the wrong attention. I don't think it's as bad as people are making it out to be. It's not great. Uh, but the, 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 the latest one is, is Pennywise sticking out from a pipe, sewer pipe. And it's clearly a work of Photoshop. It's not great. Uh, and it's just anatomically wrong. And it just, it, it doesn't look good. It doesn't look spooky. Um, it's kind of stupid. <laughs> so the more I talk about it, the more actually it is kind of dumb. I, one Twitter response was that it looked like a, a tiny clown sticking out from a, a tailpipe in a cart. Uh, but there was another picture of Pennywise, and it looks like he's standing in front of the house on Nybolt Street holding a balloon. And he looks creepy, and it looks good. And I really like that image. So I... I originally, you know, wanted um, Kerry Fukunaga to direct it. He was the original director. I was disappointed when he left, blah, blah, blah. We all know that. It's well documented in my podcast. Uh, but, you know, whatever. I like the marketing. Not the marketing, but I like the, the social media presence of the, the, the director. I can't remember his name. Uh, during the filming, I really like the look that they have for Pennywise. I like the thought process behind the look. I'm totally into it. Uh, it as you all know, I, I like how Pennywise was described in the books. I like that he looks like a typical clown in all the wrong places, and that juxtaposition makes it scary. We all know that. Um, and this looks like a scary clown, which is different. But the choices that they've made to make him look he doesn't quite look like a clown because this is an alien entity um, approximizing what a clown should look like. I like that decision. I like that there's a timeless look to him. That he looks kind of outdated in, in his uh, clown outfit. That makes sense to me. Uh, so the decision that they're making, okay, I get it. The fact that he looks kind of insectile, like, I like it. These are all good decisions. Okay, they, They've made a decision. They're standing by it. I'm fine with that. So I'm holding out hope. They have a good cast of kids, um, so I'm, I'm, I'm into it. I'm into it. So um, I'm looking forward to seeing more from that. I hope uh, a trailer drops for that soon as well, not before The Dark Tower. Um, and I hope that when The Dark Tower comes out that there is uh, a, a trailer for it. That would be really surreal to me. 
Um, and then lastly, uh, Russell Crowe has been cast in the role of uh, Reverend Jacobs from uh, Revival. That's not the, the the character that I or the actor that I would pick. And I, I to me, Russell Crowe is so dour an actor um, and so serious. I don't know if he's going to be able to capture the the. The, the charming youthful pastor that he was or the mad scientist that he becomes later. There's a, there's a manic quality to him that I don't know of Russell Crowe. He's just not, not who I would pick. However, seeing the trailer for the mummy, Russell Crowe looks like he's going to be able to pull off some eccentric qualities that maybe I hadn't seen before. And his comic timing in the nice guys was phenomenal. So my image of Russell Crowe uh, stands ready to be challenged by Russell Crowe himself. So I, I, I look forward to it because I don't have high expectations for Revival. I don't really have any expectations on Revival. So whatever Josh Boone gives me, um, I'll be surprised one way or another. Okay, guys. So with all of that out of the way, what I'm going to do next is talk about Cell. Cell the 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 movie cell um so before i get any further excuse me before i get any further i'm going to read the wikipedia summary clay riddle returns to his home when a pulse goes out turning everyone who is on a cell phone into zombie killers later dubbed escaping the mass chaos this causes he team is he teams up with tom uh, Samuel L. Jackson and Alice Isabel Furman, Clay's neighbor. The group finds a house with guns and arm themselves. The group ends up at a private school where they meet the headmaster, Charles, and a student, Jordan. Charles escorts them to the school's soccer field where the phoners have gathered and are sleeping. Using a watering truck, they douse the phoners with gasoline and set them ablaze, but the explosion kills Charles. Jordan joins the group, which then meets a group of normal people who offer them refuge for the night before heading to Cashwalk, rumored to be a cell-free area. In a bar, a woman in the group is transformed by analog noise through the door, which she opens for the phoners who attack. As the group escapes, Alice dies from her injuries sustained, saving Tom in the attack and is buried. The group stumbles upon a man and a woman who are using the woman's brother, a captive phoner, as a warning device for when flocks come near. Ray, the driver of an ice cream truck, tells the group, Cashwack is a trap. Later, in private conversation, Ray gives Clay a flip flown and a note with a phone number on it telling him to use it in the end and Ray commits suicide. The group arrives at Clay's wife's home where Clay finds a message written on the fridge from his son saying he was going to Cashwack and that his mom is one of them. In the attic, in the attic Clay finds his wife and is attacked by her but is saved by Tom and they manage to kill her. Clay goes on to Cashwack alone and gives Jordan a can of yellow spray paint to mark a path on the roads and trees that would follow once he got his son back. Clay arrives in Cashwack to find a magic, a mass, <laughs> massive cell tower being circled by a herd of phoners. He drives the ice cream truck to the center, shoots the lead phoner, and finds his son. The lead phoner is alive, emitting the pulse. The stampede also emits the same noise, and his son begins to as well. Clay dials the number on the phone Ray gives him and remotely detonates the ice cream truck that had been loaded with C4. The explosion destroys the lead phoner and brings the cell phone tower down. Clay and his son find the yellow spray-painted initials and follow the trail to Clay's friends. Review. 
If you remember my review of the book, I talked about how much I liked the opening and how a filmmaker had a fantastic opportunity to capture the chaos and uncertainty that would spring from that moment. Something about being in Boston when it goes down, the idea of a continuous long take panning around clay as the pulse goes out to me was a phenomenal idea, and here, it's a missed opportunity. Though a plane crash does occur, as it does in the novel, it happens from Clay's perspective on the ground, and certainly not at the airport. I guess I understand the set by setting it at the airport. You get a localized setting. There's a guaranteed familiarity within the viewer. Everyone can say, hey, I've been in an airport, so I get that. Maybe it's because my eyes are still healing from the scars inflicted from the Langoliers review I did a couple years ago. I'm kind of over Stephen King airport stories. Also, the open nature of the beautiful day in Boston made the horrors that much worse. Everything stood out in the book in vivid detail. It made the brutality that much more surreal. Here, we get an airport scene washed out of any color. It might as well have been filmed in black and white. The lighting, guys, in this movie is terrible. It's very difficult to watch. The only thing worse than the lighting is Cusack's hair. I don't get what they were going for, but... Picture Alan Rickman's Snape getting out of bed after a bender, and you'll be in the ballpark. Yeah, I should have noted now by now that the director, Todd Williams, makes a point to show how many people are on their cell phones at the time. He managed to capture the annoying um, aspect of air travel, and he does an effective job at showing just how crowded airports really are. Clay, played by John Cusack, calls his wife, talks to his son. Thankfully for Cusack, his phone dies before the pulse goes through. So when the pulse does go through, we get a loud buzzing noise and people are losing it. Foaming at the mouth, seizing, attacking each other, eating dogs. It's all jerky effects and quick cuts. Maybe this style of editing works for some people. I'll tell you something. It does not work for me. Let me stay with a character in the scene. Let it play out. Raise the tension through sticking with the moment and that character. Not by cutting for a heightened effect. Please, 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 people. Understand that the desired heightened effect does not work. By the time a young girl puts a phone to her ear and subsequently starts smashing her head against the wall, I started hoping my phone would provide the same reaction so that I wouldn't have to continue this review. And I'm, all, I'm not even that far into the movie. I kid, but partially. Between the editing style, the camera framing, the color desaturation, the lighting, the scene comes across as, I guess I would compare it to a sci-fi movie. I mean, a movie on the sci-fi channel. It just looks cheap. That cheapness is apparent when two CG planes, uh, on the same level of effects as the 1994's The Langoliers TV movie, explode sending one CG plane into the airport. The movie already just looks terrible. And this is their money shot. This is their opening hook. We then get our 1408 reunion as Samuel Jackson shows up. He, Cusack, and a third character, DJ Liquid, make their way through the Boston Tea. DJ Liquid doesn't last long, and he gets an uh, axe to the chest as they make their way out of the tunnel. It's a scene that borrows heavily from a famous tunnel scene in 28 Days Later, and the comparison only makes this look so much worse by comparison. We see CG smoke billow in Atlanta, a.k.a. Boston, as Cusack and Jackson make their way to Cusack's Bostonian home. This, of course, is different from the book where Clay had been traveling to Boston to meet with a comic book publisher about a job. 
Here in the movie, we see Clay's pictures tacked to the walls, and he tell us, tells us that he's working on a graphic novel. They are then joined by Esther from Orphan. Guys, have you ever seen Orphan? If I sound sarcastic right now, I'm, I'm seriously trying not to be. My wife and I saw in the theaters on a whim when the movie came out. Uh, it's not something that we'd been looking forward to. We knew it was coming out. We'd seen commercials for it. And I guess we didn't have anything to do one night. So we got some food, got some drinks, and then headed to the theater. Said, hey, you know, wh why don't we just go see Orphan? Guys, it was such a great experience. We were just plugged into that movie. That movie is just a fun, edge-of-your-seat, uncomfortable thriller. Loved it. Loved it. If you haven't seen it, you should do yourself a favor. Check it out. Anyway, the girl from that movie, played by actress Isabel Furman, uh, joins Cusack and Sam, and Sam Jackson as Alice. Hauntingly, she tells us that she's killed her mom. A line like that shows the dark reality the characters have found themselves in. Alice has now joined the group and has invited herself as the third wheel. Then something happens that makes me understand the missed opportunity here. A cell phone rings. It startles John Cusack and Samuel L. Jackson naturally. I remember personally, after 9-11, how strange it was to not see a plane in the sky. And when I eventually did see a plane for the first time after 9-11, there was a sense of danger to it that had never been there before. The movie fails to capture that feeling of dread in what is an everyday and familiar sound. I think the show Alias had captured the dread from hearing a cell phone in the early part of the first season. It's been a long time, but I could swear there was a great moment with a cell phone in the first handful of episodes. We then see the zombies beginning to flock. And after World War Z, there's no point. World War Z, the movie, um... It was an addition to the zombie genre that was fresh, and with the big budget at its disposal, made it visually terrifying. We just don't have that here. We have a group of maybe 20 extras huddling around each other. Cell, as a movie, just can't compare, so they should have tried to do something different. The budgetary limitations are fully on display as the trio is chased through the woods by a flock of zombies. Between this and The Walking Dead, I never, ever want to see a zombie movie set in the woods again. I understand that it's cost-effective, but if you aren't going to actually use the woods as an interesting setting, don't use the woods just because it's cheap. It looks really bad, guys. Like, you filmed Walking Dead fan fiction in your local state park levels of bad. It's bad. From there, we get the great Stephen King debate. If he wrote it in the book, should he include it in the movie? In this case, it's the opened mouth sound system of the zombie flock. It's a weird and interesting flourish to the zombie lore in the book. But when the director asks his, air, his actors to open their mouths and look creepy, he doesn't do anything with the shot to make it look creepy or unsettling. It's our first real glimpse of the flock, and like everything else in this movie, it looks terrible. The gang stumbles upon the headmaster and student, and they try to make sense of the giant sleeping flock. Cusack and Jackson drive through a CG pile of zombies, spraying them with gasoline and setting them on fire before the CG speaker truck explodes, killing the professor in a CG explosion. Clay then has a dream about the raggedy man forcing himself upon his wife in a needless bout of lewdness. The gang then heads to a bar and encounter other survivors who plan on heading up to Maine to get away from civilization. 
They begin discuss discussing the Raggedy Man, who they are all dreaming of. They wonder how Clay would have drawn him before he started popping up in his dreams. The zombies can start transforming others into zombies by transmitting the pulse from their mouths to someone's ear. Alice dies, and they head off into the wilderness to keep the budget down. In a campground, they meet a pair of massholes who also like to kill the zombies. They discuss the Raggedy Man, who is called the President of the Internet in the movie. Then, in a creepy moment, he hears the voice of his son coming from behind the hooded snood of a captured zombie. John Cusack isn't having it and, probably shoot, and promptly shoots the man. They take off in a vehicle that Brady Hartsfield would be proud of, and its driver, the wacky sleep-deprived Ray, takes Clay into the woods to discuss how to blow the president of the internet to smithereens. We then get the movie's third terrible CG explosion when Ray kills himself. I get that they need the audience to draw the link between the cell phone that Ray gives Clay and the suicide by detonation, but if you're limited by your special effects, why not work within your wheelhouse instead? Cusack arrives at the house of his wife and child to learn that they're not there. It should be an effective scene, and Cusack does his best to get us to care, but by the time he starts smashing his son's room, it's all the more apparent that the filmmakers had failed to establish the relationship between father and son on a character level, but only as a plot point. He is then set upon by his now-crazed wife, who was shot and killed by Samuel L. Jackson. Cusack re reacts this with a facial expression more appropriate for a man who found out that Dunkin' Donuts had just run out of his favorite donut by the time he pulled up to the drive-thru window. With his wife dead, his child missing, Clay starts to think about heading into the belly of the beast to find his son. The tag-along student from the academy begs him to not go, and the movie spends a beat in which the two characters have a heartfelt goodbye that comes out of nowhere. Honestly. I don't recall either of them ever speaking to each other in the lead-up to this moment. And then Cusack adds insult to injury when he turns to Jackson and says, You know, you're about the best friend a man can have at the end of the world. This could have been such a great moment if these two were allowed, you know, to be friends throughout this movie. You can do that, you know. Neither the Living Dead, both versions, show the relationship between Barbara and Ben. The Dawn of the Dead original was all about relationships, and relationships were a key part to what I consider the success, though I know the movie has many detractors, to the Zack Snyder and James Gunn remake. Just look at Sarah Polly and Jake Weber, and Weber and Ving Rhames, or Michael Kelly's face turn. Or best of them all, look at Shaun of the Dead. So relationships in a zombie movie are actually an expectation of the genre that this movie fails to accomplish. It's at this point when I realize that we only have 10 minutes left. Considering that at least 5 of them will be credits, that means that there's about 5 minutes to wrap this story that has dragged since the get-go and suddenly feels rushed. Clay encounters the president of the internet, runs him over with his car, then he shoots him repeatedly. Well, so much for the president of the internet. With so little to do, what's the point of having him as a character in the first place? Why create the face of the zombie movie if you aren't going to do anything with him? Could you just have had the zombies be a leaderless flock without that figurehead? At the end, I'm sorry, and then the end comes, and it's just so baffling. I guess they went with what they were trying to be a twist ending, but it's so inconsistent with the events that led up to it that it just doesn't make sense. <laughs> So we have the president of the internet, 
who was run down and shot a billion times. And Clay finds his son. His son starts transmitting. The president appears, all of a sudden, unrun over and unshot. Clay holds his son and detonates the ice cream truck. The blast clearly takes out Clay, his son, and every zombie in the cell tower. That should be the end. We cut to Clay and his son walking along the railroad tracks. They're heading after their alleged friends. When asked where they're going, Clay tells him, Canada. So either this is really happening, or Canada is heaven. If it's actually happening, then it flies in the face of the very obvious explosion that swallowed our main character. If it's an afterlife happy ending, it's uninspired. We then get the real ending that's all in Cusack's head. I guess he's just a zombie in the crowd, which again flies in the face of what we've seen. When did this happen? Did his son transmit in his ear? Did he not blow up the truck? Should I th think too much about this? Like, I'm not sure what's going on or what the intended effect is here, but it's just weak. It's a weak ending. It's not a gut punch. It just kind of sucks like anything else in this movie. End thoughts. You have a movie starring Samuel L. Jackson and John Cusack. These are two men with incredible screen presence, impeccable comedic timing, and the type of actors who could generate chemistry with a brick wall. So I don't understand why when you manage to somehow convince these two actors to appear in a movie, all you ask them to do is act as wooden, dour, and as serious as possible. Is it because there's a pervasive thought that zombie movies need to be serious with a capital S? That such thing as smiles and humor have no place in a zombie story? Who's to blame for that? The popularity of The Walking Dead, no doubt, because that's a show that strives to be taken seriously, that everything is serious. But keep in mind, it's also a show whose characters live in a world in which zombies are attracted to noise and whose favorite character barrels down a road on the loudest motorcycle in the post-apocalypse. That show has confused unhappiness with importance, the same thing that Chris Nolan movies did with the superhero genre. Thankfully, with the critical lambasting of Batman vs. Superman, it looks like we're finally shrugging that one off, but let's stick with zombies for a moment. Just because something is bleak or unhappy, grim or dour, it doesn't mean that's important. The Walking Dead, or rather, the, the, the rabid fans of The Walking Dead will tell you otherwise. But I think that this mindset is what limited our actors in this movie. Looking back at zombie movies, you're going to find that this is a recent trend. Sure, Danny Boyle created a straight-up serious thriller with 28 Days Later, but that movie is like a muscle that's in constant flex. The difference between that movie and The Walking Dead is that 28 Days Later is relentless. But looking at the majority of zombie movies, there is humor. Dawn of the Dead, both the original and the Zack Snyder version, have fantastic moments of levity. Dawn of the Dead, as claustrophobic as it is, still has a zombie named Bub. Sorry, um, Day of the Dead. That's supposed to elimit, uh, elicit a smile. Zombie 2 has a fun zombie fighting a shark scene, for Christ's sakes. Basically what I'm saying is, it's okay to have fun in a zombie movie. I don't know when a zombie movie meant that you were allowed to have more fun in a funeral than during the movie itself, but when you have Samuel Jackson and John Cusack 
It's such a waste of what could have been a very fun zombie movie. And that's okay. Just think of the professor and the student from the book. Their inclusion and characterization was a very stylized and cartoony aspect of the novel. An academic Batman and Robin buddy cop pairing. The creative team here almost, almost starts to hedge into that territory, but it's really a wasted opportunity. And it's visually drab. Think about the book, guys. Think about the images from the book. The broken cell phones everywhere. The raggedy man. The flocking zombies. Levitating zombies. The rigged system at the end of the book. There are crazy images that were in the book that could have distinguished this movie, this drab, boring movie, from other zombie movies. Um, and it just failed to, to do so. This movie should pop. At the very least, it should pop. Like I said at the top of the review about the failure at the airport scene, this movie, everything about it, it's drab, it's joyless, it's an endurance and bleakness both in tone and color. This is all the more absurd considering its main character is an artist. This movie should pop. Now with social commentary, with Romero's original Night of the Living Dead, he began not only the zombie genre as we know it, but launched the zombie genre as social commentary. When King wrote Cell, we were taking our first steps on a bumpy road. Since then, cell phones evolved into smartphones, and our dependence on them has grown into something resembling a frightening look of sci-fi sci satire in modern life. Sadly, it's true, and I'm not above it. You just heard it! My, my, I just got a text message during the recording of this podcast. I'm addicted to my phone. I just feel that with social media having interwoven itself um, into our lives to the point that a large portion of the population gets their news from Facebook, and this has affected the political outcome of our election, there was a lot of room to make a statement that our society as it stands today. However, the movie never transpires to make a statement, um, sorry, it never transpires to be anything other than a typical zombies fair. It doesn't stretch the boundaries or even attempt to make its own stamp on the genre. It's a middling, boring, drab, redundant entry in a played-out genre. And that's the nicest I can be to this particular movie. So I had recorded this episode back in um, the summer, early summer, I believe. Um, or I, I watched the movie and put down my, my thoughts I've been holding off on recording because I just didn't enjoy watching this movie and I wasn't going to enjoy revisiting it um, through podcast form. So it's not even that I can even crack jokes because it's just not good. So I hope that listening to this is as close you come to watching the Cell movie because it just it's not good. So this is not the episode that I wanted to give you as a Christmas present. Um... I really wanted to talk about The Dark Tower, and I hope that that comes out soon, guys, so that we can um, we can spend some more time together, um, because as I stated in my last episode um, before Halloween, right now I'm just kind of dedicating myself to uh, fatherhood and reading and being with my wife and just living life um, and doing writing when I can. 
so I can't devote myself to the, 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 the podcast the way that I had before. But when major Dark Tower news is going to drop, I'm going to be all about it. So the next time that you'll hear from me is when that trailer drops, guys. Hopefully that will be soon. So I hope that everyone had a fantastic holiday season. I hope that 2017 for everyone is what you want it to be. I hope that all of your dreams come true um, in life and love um, and in the world of Stephen King. So may you have long days and pleasant nights, and I'll see you here next time where M-O-O-L... <laughs> it's been that long. So may you have long days and pleasant nights, and I'll see you here next time where M-O-O-N spells Stephen King cast. So happy.